hockey stick curve growth. It sounds great, but those things also typically come with more risk. What's the worst thing that can happen? No, seriously, ask yourself that and visualize the answer. This is a mindset practice that Laura Shaw and I discussed on today's episode of Up Next in Commerce. Laura is the founder and CEO of Henne Organics, but her journey to the business world actually started out in the sports world as a professional table tennis player. And from there, she grew into the entrepreneur that she is today. Hear about her windy journey on today's episode. I'm your host, Stephanie Postles, CEO of Mission.org, and I'm excited to share today's chat. What are business leaders thinking about when they aren't winning a business? Family, travel, the latest TV show? Yes, yes, and maybe. But how about quirky business opportunities or little discussed financial trends or maybe even plant medicine benefits and alternative wellness? Mission Daily is back, baby, and our flagship podcast is better than ever. Mission Daily is the podcast for the business builder, the thoughtful marketer, the team manager, the blue-collar worker looking for new ways to think about life, finances, and health. This is for the people who want to break the status quo and laugh a little or a lot along the way. Join me, Stephanie Postles, and my co-host, Albert Chow, as we address the subjects, thoughts, and trends that business leaders think about but don't often talk about. Tune into Mission Daily wherever you listen to your podcasts. See you there. Laura, thanks for hopping on today. I'm excited to chat. Thanks for having me. I'm excited as well. So I want to start back with your history as an athlete, because I thought that was such a unique beginning when I was reading through that. And I want to hear what you did and kind of like a little glimpse into your life back when you were an athlete. Yeah. So I played professional table tennis, which in the States is definitely not as you know well known. And I hope I'm not wrong on this because it's been a while since I was actively playing, but I do believe it still is technically the number two biggest sport in the world. but could be wrong at this point. But it is actually a really big sport internationally. And I started learning it when I was a kid through my dad. It was it's probably one of the biggest loves of his life. And so I competed in the States. I did retire a little bit earlier than expected. That more was just the college I ended up going to. And at that time, so when I was, I went to college in 2006. Um, And just at that time, when it comes to the table tennis world in the States, you couldn't really make a living off of it. I mean, you really hardly could. That is starting to gradually change a little bit now. So the mindset back then was kind of, okay, play up until I go to college. And then if I end up going to college in a city where there's a club where I can actually keep competing a little bit, that's great. If not, you know, it is what it is. This wasn't this wasn't supposed to be the ultimate end-all career path anyways, but um, it was great. Um, I was on the national cadet team, national junior team. I got to travel the world uh, for free, which is always nice. That's awesome. And, you know, I, I think I wish I appreciated that a little bit at that age, because when you're that young and you're traveling internationally for free, it's great to see the different countries. But I think one of the biggest highlights was just getting an allowance from the national team to go buy junk food <laughs> at that age. It's like, oh my God, I can spend $300 on all this food that my parents have never let me eat at home. So we would like go to the grocery store and fill, you know, like fill the carts with like food that today I actually cannot eat because it would basically make yeah. me bloated and gassy for a week. 
But when you're like 15 and 16, you're like, oh my gosh. So that part was, you know, oddly one of the highlights, just gorging on food that with ingredients you can't pronounce. But yeah, computing was really fun. And I think it taught me some really great skills in life. I think as with a lot of sports, it teaches you discipline and especially being a solo sport, even though being on a national team, you have some tournaments, you compete with the team, you're still playing usually one-on-one. You know, there's some doubles matches, but overall it's one-on-one. And it, it teaches really great accountability. When you win, that's great. You get a lot of praise. And of course, it's not just you, it's your coach, you know, the people you train with. But when you lose, it's on you, you know? You shouldn't be blaming teammates in a team sport anyways, but you really can't in a solo sport. You can't be like, oh, so-and-so, they dropped the ball. It's like, no, it was just you. And I think that's really important, especially at a young age. I think it's actually really important to learn how to lose because everybody loses, you know, and it's important to deal with it and just find ways to work harder and do better next time instead of sulking too much or thinking it's the end of the world or or thinking that you're invincible and you're never going to have a tough moment. It's I think... It sucks in the moment to lose, but I actually think it's, you know, it's really important to do it. So yeah, a little brief tidbit. That's awesome. I uh, grew up in, you know, soccer all through middle school and high school. And I feel like I was on losing teams the whole time. So I think I got a lot of good lessons. I really can't remember many wins. I feel like I have a black belt in losing. (laughs) Yeah, just lost all day, every day. (laughs) So when thinking about traveling internationally, I know you were like, I don't know if I could fully value it at that age. What do you think could have changed me having kids, I'm always thinking about this kind of stuff of like, I want to bring my kids international, but yeah, how could the incentives have been structured or what could have been different that you think maybe would have, you know, had you value that experience more? Or have you ever thought about that? Um, I think that, I think some of it comes with maturity. I think even just like, I'm 33, I'm turning 34 this summer. And I just think, um, this has nothing to do with table tennis, but in my twenties, we lived in some phenomenal places you know, you and I were briefly talking earlier about li- me living in Melbourne, but I lived in, especially in countries like New Zealand, where it's just so beautiful. Like that's where they filmed, you know, scenes from Lord of the Rings and it's really gorgeous. I think even in my 20s, I did not have a strong enough appreciation for nature because there were still things, especially in my early to mid 20s, that I valued that I don't value at all today. You know, like mm-hmm. going to the right nightclub or, you know, getting into a certain bar yeah. it, that mattered at that age. Whereas now, I just hope I don't get invited because it's like the last thing I want to do. I'm like, what about coffee? Uh, Let's do coffee instead. (laughs) And so I think when I was a kid, I think just, yeah, I think being younger and um, I think just being away from home was really exciting and really fun at that age. But actually seeing, you know, being in different countries, seeing different cultures, I feel like that appreciation definitely came a little bit later, but it definitely helped mold me. And I think even at that age, it really changed my mindset about certain things that um, I was aware of at the time, but it's even more obvious to me now as an adult. For example, I grew up in the Midwest. So I grew up on the Kansas side, uh, Kansas City, in the suburbs. And I was very bored (laughs) growing up. Very, very safe place to live. My dad still loves to send me articles that lists uh, Overland Park, Kansas is one of the top five places in America to live. And I'm like, I'm still not moving back. Like this doesn't, I'm like, it just doesn't help. Like he sent it to me last week and I was like, thank you. No, thanks. Um, <laughs> Good to know. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a great place to raise, you know, raise a family, but not a lot happens there. And also I think some of my classmates and I think of course, everyone's experiences are different, but I think being exposed to different cultures and especially like we weren't only going to 
really, you know, wealthy countries. So, you know, we went to Brazil. Uh, I did training camps in China. Um, I've been to the countryside of China in areas where there's no running electricity. It's it's definitely sobering, and it kind of does remind you that things aren't as bad as you think they are. And especially for me, like um, my parents came to the states when I was, you know, um, and I came to the states when I was two. And when I was really, really young, I wasn't even aware that like we were poor because my dad was poor when he came here. He got a full ride scholarship. So even though I didn't really experience much of it firsthand, I think still being exposed to that when I got older, along with just hearing stories about from my parents, the way they grew up, which was especially my dad, like just really tough. Like, you know, um, I'll use an example, like getting to eat meat and eggs on birthdays. You know what I mean? Gosh, yeah. Yeah. Like my dad was like 120 something pounds up until his late 20s. And that was not because he wanted to be really emaciatedly yeah. skinny. He just, it's just, there wasn't pl- like, it wasn't plentiful when it came to food at that time. Um, so I think that helped me when it came to, I wouldn't say coping, but just even at that age, kind of assessing like teenage problems or school problems and realizing that most of them are not that important. You know what I mean? I didn't get as stressed or as worried about certain things that my friends were would just because at least I still had some things to compare it to. And I think that was really helpful for me. So, yep. I mean, even thinking about the mindset that comes from that by seeing the experiences, you know, that your dad went through having that on your mind. I mean, then starting a company, I want to kind of hear, you know, what went through your head, knowing the risks that, you know, come with starting in a company and maybe just also knowing where your parents came from and seeing other people around the world and the situations they're in, what went through your head? Well, I am very fortunate that because of the path, you know, the paths, I guess, that my parents led, that I was given an opportunity where I didn't have to worry about shelter. I didn't have to worry about food or clothes or those, those things. And I definitely think, think that it makes it a lot easier to even consider being an entrepreneur. And I'll be totally honest with you. Yeah, I love my parents, but this was not really the path that they wanted me to go down. And out of meaning well, because after all that suffering and, you know, the hardships, I think they were just really hoping I would just take a safe path, have a safe life, live comfortably, safe, 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 right? But growing up in that safe environment and, you know, in a place where it's really safe, combined with traveling and maybe just natural personality type, I do think that I've always been a more, I guess, an independent thinker. I'm not going to say that I, when I was a little kid, I wanted to be an entrepreneur. That's completely false. I, I don't even know if that crossed my mind. I, I wanted to be a, you know, I wanted to be a TV reporter when I was young. And that's actually my education. That's what I studied. But um, sometimes things in, ha- in life just happen. You know, my, uh, my husband is Swedish. So after college, we moved to Sweden. And I learned pretty quickly. That was also a nice lesson. A little bit painful that like, uh, nobody wanted to hire me because my education and all my internships and all my work experience were things regarding to journalism and English. And in Sweden at that time, I had the vocabulary level of about a two-year-old with an no. extra thick American accent. And needless to say, I was not able to get a job in any decent field. And that was a, a nice wake-up call. I realized that I needed to learn some new skill sets. So I started you know, learning different things. And you know, it's um, a lot of different random things in life kind of led to starting Henna, I guess my point is. And it, it just... I always say to people, and I'm a perpetual planner. I love to plan everything. Like even being my own boss, I still in my calendar like to put in my lunch breaks, even though nobody cares how long of a lunch break I take. And I'm, I answer to no one. 
but it's just, I love to schedule things. And the thing is you cannot schedule things in your life. Like in the end, you know, of course I could say, Oh, you know, we lived in a lot of different countries and me being very into natural, organic, non-GMO. Yes. All those things were contributing factors to launching henna, but a very random factor was the fact that we spontaneously decided to move to Las Vegas. And I got really disgustingly dry, gnarly lips when I moved there. And because of that reason, we started making a lip balm in the kitchen. Wow. So, you know, it's just, even my husband, he's a part of the business and he works on it almost full time, but he didn't expect to own a lip care, primarily lip care company either. Life just happens, you know? And it's like, whether you want to or not, whether it's positive or negative, all the big things in life, I have just not been able to predict any of them. I mean, COVID, that's not a good thing, but wasn't able to predict that either. It's like, you know, the really big things in life, they just kind of hit you, you know, but they can be also be really positive, of course, like even henna, that was that's something that I'm really grateful happened. Yeah, life, life's just weird. It is. Yeah, super random. What's interesting is you saying yes, I mean, having that call to adventure and then knowing what you want to jump on. I mean, how did you know henna was the thing that you wanted to build going from I'm just doing this because I'm in Las Vegas for I mean, whoever who knows how long because you were moving around so much, you could have just been there like a month to then being like, well, now I actually want to make this my full-time thing. Like, yeah, how did you know when you wanted to jump full-time on it? I didn't fully know in the beginning. Like I, I hoped that I could do it full-time, but I didn't really know. And we really bootstrapped. Like we start off in the home kitchen. My house looked like, and I'm a neat freak, but my house just looked like a total, just a total mess for the span of almost two years. I talked it through with my husband and I said, you know, I think to be fair to myself, I want to give it a solid two years. And I'm not saying that's the right thing for everyone. I just mean like, I'm going to give it my all. I'm not saying I have to be wildly successful in two years, but I need to feel like I have proof of concept and this is actually viable. And if it's not at the two year mark, and I really feel like this is just not working, maybe this isn't the right path. I'm open to trying something else. You know what I mean? And this can be different for, for everyone. And I'm sure it varies depending on the industry as well. Maybe certain, I don't know, everyone's path is different. But for me, I, I really wanted to give it my all for at least two years. That way I don't have to look back and think, what if, you know what I mean? Because well, the tricky thing with jumping, you know, from idea to idea or, you know, whatever, business to business and not really giving it a fair chance is you could have had something in your hands that you could have really made flourish, right? But if you're not willing to really commit for at least a period of time, yeah, you might think, what if in 20, 30, 40 years? And I didn't want to have that regret. Uh, so I think at, actually around the one-year mark was when we both felt like, no, this this not no, but yes, this can work. Um, and then it just kind of took it from there. And, um, you know, we're still a small business. We're not a huge company, but we're, you know, we're growing every year and, you know, we're actually still um, self-funded to this day. And I, I do say never say never. I'm not claiming we're, we have to always be, but the reason we are also is because we've been pretty careful along the way. So it's easy to be self-funded as well when you're profitable. Yeah. If there's some strategic partner that comes along and it feels like the absolute perfect fit. Yeah, maybe. But for right now, I'm pretty pleased with just the way things are going. Amazing. And so you started off with just the one product, right? The lip balm? Yep. Yeah, literally, um, I applied for USDA uh, organic certification at the same time. And so it was kind of funny having this lady fly in from Hawaii to look at my kitchen because nothing had started yet. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. What'd she say? She told me next year's <laughs> inspection is going to be 100 times harder. 
But since I haven't started yet, she has to do a pre-inspection. So I was like, this is my kitchen. This is a pot. This is a spatula. I might use this one, but I also might use another one. I'm not sure yet. And it was just, I had to pay for her travel expenses. And I was just thinking like, she flew all the way over here just to stand in my kitchen and look at my spatula. It just feels like we should, I was just, you know, like we should have done Skype. You know what I mean? Like should have done FaceTime or Zoom. Well, there was no Zoom back then. So funny. So was the second year harder then? <laughs> yes. And we had all the documentation. Yeah, yeah we, we were ready. And second year went fine. But it was like night and day. So I hope no one listens to this. And it's like, it's that easy to get organic yeah. certified. You just need a pot and a spatula to fly in some random woman from Hawaii. Uh, but no, it is a lot harder. It's actually quite difficult. And I'm still glad we had that. So but yeah, it just started with one product. It was a combination of, you know, bootstrapping and self-funding. So not wanting to launch a bunch of products. But I, at that point, I still wasn't sure the direction we wanted to go in. I didn't know that we were going to be only lips. You know, that kind of came a little bit later. So I just wanted to kind of like gently test the waters. And our, you know, skill set at that time, our backgrounds, like my husband at that point had taught himself how to do web development. And I had been doing web and graphic design and branding. We were able to save so much money because even right from the start, we, we've always had a really nice website. You know, it does look really nice. <laughs> oh, thank you. Um, and we've had a great backend system as well. And I think that just saved us, even to this day, has saved us so much money. Yeah, I'm so grateful for that. So find a good partner who has good skills. Step one. It's not a. Re- I was like, it's not a requirement <laughs> to find like a, a partner in life. So I say this to friends because, you know, we've had we have so many different couples. Friends will ask for advice here and there, and I'm brutally honest with the ones that. I'm close with and they can take it. And some of them, you know, they have great complementary skill sets. And I think they totally can work together. But I have other friends where they they tell me, because um, I'm not that opinion made right from the start. I don't tell like, you guys are not going to work as business partners. Yeah. But they'll tell me like, okay, we've really tried and we just want to murder each other. Like this is so mm-hmm. hard. And I have to say, you know, just you can find the most amazing person in life like the love of your life, and they might not be the right business partner. Yep. It could be a combination of factors. It could be personality, personality types when you're working together. It could be skill sets. Maybe you don't have complementary skill sets. Maybe they, they, it doesn't work. So I think it's great in our situation and we love working together and we don't mind being around each other almost 24 seven, but that is not for everybody, you know, and especially if you have like a wonderful, loving romantic relationship and you think that this don't ruin it <laughs> is going to make you think very bad thoughts yeah. about your significant other all the time you might want to rethink it and this it might not be for you i think personally at least for me i'm confident in the skill sets that i have but i'm also very aware of a lot of skills that i don't have and so i definitely feel more confident having a solid business partner that fills in those gaps for me yeah you know i think it's really important to of course have confidence and what your strengths are, but you have to be honest with yourself at what you're not good at. Mm-hmm. You know, there are certain things I'm not great at. You know, math is not my strong suit. I'm not terrible at it, but you know, I'm not great at it. So that's just a perfect example. Like numbers, give me a calculator. I'm fine. You want me to do something off the top of my head? You're kidding yourself. Just because I'm Asian doesn't mean I'm great at math. Although my dad has a PhD in math, so we don't know what happened there, but uh oops. His dad's like, I don't want to hear this episode. What yeah. is happening here, Laura? Oops. <laughs> Yeah, same. I'm also not good when it comes to like trying to think of quick formulas off my head and people running numbers. I'm like, can we write this down? Like, 
can we draw some pictures here? Yeah, yeah. Like a chart or something? I don't yeah. know. <laughs> right there with you. So I want to hear, I was reading a bit about a practice that you do around mindful negative visualizations and how, I mean, I know it came from like your world when you were in table tennis, but then also probably how it influences business. And so many people nowadays are all about, you know, you don't want to visualize bad things. You're going to manifest them. They're going to come into your life. I actually don't think that, but I, when I read that you've kind of gone through that practice, I want to hear, you know, where did that stem from? And do you still use that today? Yeah, I definitely do. And it helps me a lot with feeling anxious or worried about things. So when I was younger and I did sports, I think, you know, in every sport, they, they teach you visualization, right? And positive visualization is very important. You visualize yourself, you know, let's say with table tennis, obviously, that's the easiest example for me to use. Like I visualize myself beating a certain opponent in a certain way because I practiced and I know that person's weaknesses in their game. And I, I know how I'm going to try to figure out ways to, you know, beat them in that area and, you know, picture myself getting the trophy or the medal handed to me, standing on the podium, all those things. That's fantastic. For me, what also helps, and I would say this visualization, I probably do still a little bit less than the positive one, but I also think it's okay to visualize some of those fears. You don't have to let it take over you, but sometimes you think, okay, what is my, like, if you're really feeling anxious, like, okay, what's the worst thing that can happen? And what is this thing popping up in my head, right? Like briefly visualize it and think, can I overcome this? Like, is it as horrible as I thought? Like, if this were to happen, how would I react, right? And if you realize that you actually can find a way to overcome it, at least for me, and maybe it doesn't work for everybody, I feel more at ease. And I'll, I'll use another example with table tennis. I visualize sometimes what happens if I get sick. Because for example, certain tournaments, and it's same with every sport, certain competitions, they're not waiting for you. It's, a, it's on a certain date. Everyone's going to compete. If you're sick, if you're not feeling it that day, tough luck. That's your opportunity. And that worked out for me because one time there was a, it was U.S. Nationals. It's a tournament in December. And the U.S. Nationals tournament for table tennis in the States at that time, the same tournament, they also had the trials for the national team for the following year. So talk about pressure, right? Not only is it like the biggest tournament of the year, but at the same time, they want you to also do tryouts. And guess what? One of the years I had a fever. I don't know if it was like 101, 102, 103. I was, this is TMI, but I was throwing up like very often throughout the day. I was just going to the bathroom, throwing up. I looked not well, but my, uh, my dad was my coach at the time. He did not force me or anything, but he just said, you know, I, I know you don't, you feel terrible. Like, you know, just it's up to you. But I just, you know, this is something I'd visualized before and also me being stubborn. I was just like, no, like I'm not losing this opportunity. Once again, might not be the smartest of some. If you're really, really sick, maybe you should just go home or go to the hospital. But in that situation, I was just, I refused. And so I just played the whole tournament with a fever. I should have finished first. I did finish second, unfortunately. And I was a little bit disappointed with that. Pretty good going sick playing. But still, I actually, up until the finals, I actually had one of my best performances overall at a tournament, having that fever. And it wasn't, like I said, it wasn't fun, but I had visualized that maybe happening before. And even though it sucked in the moment, I didn't feel like I was dying. You know what I mean? And I just, I just wasn't willing. I, I knew I would feel worse not giving it my, my best as opposed to just caving in and saying, okay, disqualify me. Hey there, are you enjoying the show so far? Well, imagine your company's advertising placed right in this very spot during a future interview with another elite e-commerce mind. 
Imagine your messaging and logo directly connected to the industry's most prominent innovators and thought leaders, distributed across every major podcast platform and social network. Yeah, well, it's time to stop imagining. Learn how you can partner with Upnext in Commerce and sponsor this very show. Reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org and let's have a conversation. So, I mean, the real question is like, did you throw up when you were in the tournament or were you able to keep it in? I, I did, not during matches, but in between, yes. I would just casually oh say gosh. like, oh, I need to go to the bathroom. Um, yeah. Yeah, got a stretch. <laughs> yeah, and so, um, yeah, no one, and the, the, at least the good thing with table tennis is like, you're not touching each other. Like when I had, when I had yeah. the flu and like, so people didn't really notice. Yeah. It was winter. I was already paler than usual. I'm normally quite tan. So, you know, being a little bit pale in December is not really cause for concern. Once again, <laughs> disclaimer. If you're really sick, perhaps don't compete in a sport. But and then even move fast forward with business, I have to visualize sometimes when something happens. Like you know, once again, bad things that have happened in the business, I did not foresee. You know what I mean? And sometimes when it's happened, first I take action immediately. I, I'm not the type to freeze. I take action immediately, but I'm still panicking on the inside. I'm still freaking out, right? I'm like, oh my god, how did this happen? But then I, I'll do a little visualization like. How am I going to feel in a few months? How am I going to feel in a year? Is it really so horrible that I'm not going to be able to get over this? And then when I realize, no, I will, I, I feel more at ease and it's easier for me to now go into not damage control, but you know what I mean? Like try to fix yeah. whatever situation or thing that just happened. Yeah. I personally think it's worked out really well for me to do it. And I still do it to this day, but I would say the ratio is maybe like two to one, like basically two thirds of positive visualization and one third of, you know, whether you want to call it negative or just maybe like obstacle visualization. Yeah. I think it's very helpful. I agree. I've always thought it's the best way to kind of reduce fear when it comes to building a company. And I've done that quite often. I'm like, what's the worst that can happen? Okay. Is that the worst? Oh wait, there's something even worse. And you kind of go down there and you're like, well, actually that's not as bad as like, you know, I originally thought it was this big thing and now I know where it could lead and that would definitely suck. But not the worst thing in the world. So yeah, I agree. I think it's super powerful and you don't have to get yeah fully caught up in it in a way that ruins your life. Just mm -hmm. I think it takes away the fear around a lot of things that are more unknown until you kind of think it through. Yeah. You know, I'm guilty of this too. Sometimes the fears and you create this little monster in your head and you need to actually bring it back down. You know, you need to shrink it because once you really think it through a little bit more rationally, that's sometimes when you realize it's actually nothing. Sometimes it is nothing. You know, we all, yep. I do it sometimes too. Like I stress over something that I, it's not even a big deal. I realize it after I just think it through a little bit like, okay, calm down. Yeah. It's, it's not that bad. I agree. So you were mentioning, you know, using that, I'll just call it a mindset hack, whatever you want to call it when bad things happen in the company. So what were maybe some of the hiccups that you've encountered when building henna? Um, thankfully, knock on wood, it's not, thing, it's not been anything gigantic, but a lot of it is, you know, packaging issues. And we've, we've been like, um, fortunate in the sense that we have not like sent many products out on the market that have had these issues because we actually manufacture everything in house. And so one of the biggest pros is that when there's an issue, we kind of discover it like the initial five minutes when it happens. Like if we receive a certain ingredient and it looks a little bit off, my production manager, if she's not really sure if this is acceptable, she'll come up to us. But overall, like 99 out of 100 times, she can already tell. So she'll just make note of it. And the same thing goes when we receive our like bulk shipments of 
packaging that can be bottles, tubes. And some of the big hiccups or bigger hiccups are when you receive it and almost everything is defective. And we've had great suppliers and great suppliers we work with today. And we've had some not so great ones where, you know, we already paid for everything and now they don't want to admit that something is wrong. And so those situations, uh, we've had situations where, and this is very common with most businesses. And that's why I think it's really good to put as many hooks out there as possible is that, um, really huge that what seem like really huge, great opportunities just fall through. Or, you know, you partner with someone or you do something and it turns out that they're not honest with you and, you know, those type of things. And so thankfully, like I said, there's not been something absolutely catastrophic for us. There are a couple things that could have been had we gone through with them. And I think that's when sometimes like, I'm naturally not a giant risk taker. I'm like a, a cautious I'm like a, like a calculated risk taker and I'm still fairly cautious and we all have different thresholds of what we're comfortable with. That's just me. And so I think because of it, thankfully in this situation, there's been a couple of quote unquote opportunities that would have been death traps. Like they would have bankrupted us. Yeah. And were they like partnership ones or like working with certain retailers? Yes. Yes. Both. Okay. Yeah. And it's just a little bit of just being naive and I think also just not, I don't come from the beauty industry or from you know beauty fashion industry. I don't come from those industries. And so I think there's just certain types of um, assumptions you have or whatnot in the beginning. And you later on find out that that's not true. And so I think earlier on, we, we got presented certain opportunities that you know, seemed a little bit almost too good to be true. And they were. Like, what's an example that you don't have names? Because I'm trying to think about all the founders listening where they're like, well, how will I ever know? Like, what are some maybe red flags that you saw or the opportunity? Um, I'll try to be vague. I won't name any names. Yeah. For example. That's fine. There was this um, sales slash distribution partnership in Europe where the way it was structured, we would have had to put up quite a bit ourselves when everything from money, inventory, et cetera. And we were only like maybe a year old at that time. And they were using a few pretty prestigious beauty brands, like very big beauty brands that they were working with. So it, had we signed with them, we would have been like a tadpole, you know, in, in that ocean compared to their other clients. And we were almost at the final stages of the contract. And I was just, my cautious side just felt like it's just so much money at this stage. It's, it's going to like literally wipe out all of our savings in general. And I just didn't feel that comfortable. And, and in the end, I didn't end up signing. And then I found out about one or two years later, for example, like one of the brands that they were working with, they drove it to the ground. That brand filed for bankruptcy, a big brand, by the way, a pretty big wow. brand for being in the beauty space. And I was like, I mean, if, <laughs> if that happened to them, I'm like, imagine us, we wouldn't, we wouldn't have been done after like a month. So certain things like that. And also definitely especially distributors, like we have great distributors that we work with, but you have to be careful with that because when distributors contact you, especially from a foreign country, it can be a lot more difficult to vet them, especially if it's not obviously in English. It's a little bit hard to do, you know, and to get, I I highly encourage to get referrals and be pushy about it if they're not willing to give it to you. And if they're still not willing to give it to you, this is not a good sign. You know what I mean? And really contact them just because they send you an email with a couple of people um, does not mean they could they could send you a list of people they don't know. One of them sent me some very prestigious referrals and I contacted all of them and not one 
not one responded to me. Wow. Of course, they might have just not seen my email, but I I make the point, I don't contact one, I contact all because I realize we all get a lot of emails in our inbox. And so maybe I, I end up in spam sometimes. And so if you give me four or five referrals, I email all of them. And so sometimes that kind of ends up showing a small red flag and then you see another red flag. Uh, because especially with distribution, you typically offer them exclusivity for, you know, a country or sometimes, you know, even more than that. And those contracts, they usually lock you in for a longer period of time. So I think it's just good to do your due diligence. And I know, of course, in my in my situation, it's the beauty industry, but I would say with with any industry you work with, I used to be in the tech space a little bit as well. And my husband had a startup that didn't really take off at that time. And unfortunately, one of the I would say reasons why that one had some issues was some of the investors, you know, it was, it was tricky with those, you know, Mm -hmm. some of them were not as transparent as they should have been. So that's what I mean. Like do your due diligence. It's, you can do it very politely, do it very professionally. When I say pushy, I don't mean actually being like aggressive about it. You know, be polite, politely ask for, you know, references, referrals, whatnot. But um, I think that's really important and that can save you a lot of headaches. It's really worth your time. Same with, you know, hiring, you know, same with all those things. Like when you're hiring someone, if, if you have, if you ask for past work references, like actually contact them, Yep. you know, because you would be surprised. <laughs> I know. I was just reading a very good, I think it's pretty old, but I think it's called like, who is this human here or something like that. And it goes through like how to hire, you know, a good candidate and a huge section on reference questions and why you actually need to call. And I feel like so many of us in this day and age kind of have maybe just lost that, you know, concept to actually make the call and to actually have a conversation. And the questions they had there, I mean, they were really, really good reference questions that no matter what happened on that call or if that person was trying to make someone look good, like there are questions you can ask to actually understand, like, is this person just a good fit for my company, though? They're probably a great person, but are they a good fit for this role? And yeah, I think it's a great reminder for anything, finding manufacturers, like whatever it may be, Yes. Doing the reference check is like super important. Yeah. Because it is, you know, I'm not saying, of course, most people don't do this, but some people will pad their resumes and some people will create completely fake resumes. We've had that before, yeah. not with people we ended up hiring, but when I dug a little bit, I realized like nothing on their resume was real. Everything was made up, you know? And so, um, and then same with, yeah, partnerships, Anything that, like most things in life, I would say anything that feels remotely risky, I think it's just worth it to do a little bit, you know, do a little bit of research. And once again, it depends on personality type. Me, I'm, I'm, I'm a natural extrovert. I have a type A personality, I, but I also, I'm not, I'm not about just like winging it, you know what I mean? When it comes to those type yeah. of things, I just, I feel like I would feel very uncomfortable if I did that. Yeah, I agree. So I want to hear how you gain the traction that you did. I mean, to me, looking at you guys, you're in, you know, great retailers are, you know, having your products there. seems like you grew very quickly. Maybe I think you said it was like at the one year part point, you knew that, you know, this is a thing. But I want to hear, you know, what happened behind the scenes to find those, you know, very first few customers or even making those deals with the, uh, you know, the retailers that you work with. So it's uh, some of it. It was like, yeah, uh, let's see how to explain this. I think persistence was really important. And I uh, combined with just taking action. So when we first launched, this was a blessing in disguise. We part, I partnered with a sales rep who just didn't end up being that great at what she did. 
And so I didn't have any other contacts really at that time. Like I didn't really know who else we could partner with. And sales, it wasn't something that I was trained on either. And so I was like, well, I mean, if I can't find someone else, like someone's got to do it. And this is like maybe at the two month mark, maybe three month mark of us existing. Okay. And so I just started contacting retailers myself. And I started contacting quite a few of them. And I wasn't just randomly contacting them. I was like making these lists of what retailers I thought we, sh- we would fit well in. Everything from high-end clothing boutiques to spas to beauty boutiques. And then um, through our system, our own system, I would log that information. And so I would be able to, you know, like schedule set reminders to follow up with them. And so it kind of became a numbers game, but it wasn't just contact everybody in America. It was still with very, you know, certain parameters in mind. And so, I mean, I sent thousands of emails, not to be punny since we're called Henry Organics, but the growth has really been organic. We've never really had like some gigantic thing happen to us still at this point. And I think that's okay. I do think that, you know, that phrase, the snowball effect, I do think it will happen here and there, but overall it has been consistent and I'm okay with that. I don't, I, I know that it's very attractive, especially previously coming from the tech industry for, for a little bit of time, you know, that idea of that hockey curve, yeah, hockey stick, hockey stick yeah. curve. Oh my gosh, I can't speak today, but yeah, yeah, hockey stick curve growth. It sounds great. And yes, it's, it'd be fantastic if that happens, but those things also typically come with more risk. And me, once again, being more calculated, I do like growing steadily. Also, because of that, we've been able to, you know, catch up. Yeah. Like we haven't had moments where we're in the red all of a sudden because we're growing so fast and we just can't keep up. Right. And I think just in general, like for any entrepreneur, I would say that taking action is important. You know, you don't have to bootstrap the way I did. Everyone has their own path. But for me, that was really important because that's how at that one year mark, like, you know, we were talking about earlier. I really felt it because at the one year mark, I don't know how many retailers we had at that point, but I think I want, I don't know if it was like 50 to 70 or something, but it was like, it was a, it was a great number, you know what I mean? And way higher than I anticipated before just working with a sales rep. I thought I was expecting lower numbers than that. And so then I realized, okay, I mean, I don't want to be doing this forever. Like me just pumping out these emails and having these calls, but if that's, what's got to be done, then it has to be done. You know, it's not, no, it's not fun. And it's not fun sometimes to wake up and you realize you just got rejected like 30 times before I even had my morning coffee. But, you know, it just, and I think once again, sports helped me like being more used to losing makes me also a little bit, at least it made me a little bit more used to the rejection. And it's not like I handle it well every day, but overall, I think starting off having thicker skin helped. And the thing is, even if you don't have thick skin to be like, to begin with, that's okay. You can develop it. A lot of things will help you develop thicker skin. You just, it's just, once you get used to something, it's not that bad. And because also things come in waves, you know, life is funny. So some days I would wake up and I I would have a lot of great emails. I would have some orders, you know, opening orders. And so it's just, yeah. I mean, the concept of patience, I just hear that over and over again on this show from all the founders and CEOs of just, you know, the companies that had that explosive growth actually maybe are the ones that aren't really around anymore. And the ones who, you know, took the more slow and steady approach and made sure they were profitable and, you know, were doing things in an economical way are the ones who are still here five, seven, 10 years later. So I think that's the smartest way of doing things. And thinking about the hockey stick approach, I feel like that's taking the tech scene and trying to apply it to like the D2C space. That's where I think things have gotten kind of fuzzy is that 
people see I agree. that hockey stick chart. And it's like, yeah, well, that's for a SaaS model that, you know, only gets better and better as you sell more seats. And there's no additional cost with that at all versus actually making a product like very different. But it's been interesting watching the two converge and the expectations of like what D2C should look like and when they're so not similar. But yeah, and it's it's very it's very tempting to get caught up in that and to kind of fall into that. And once again, I have friends who have raised from the start and it has worked out, but I've also had ones who raised and their companies also don't exist anymore. So there's no guarantee whether you bootstrap or whether you fundraise. But the thing is like, yeah, I mean, I, I at least I think unless I'm old school, I think any business, the long-term goal is to be profitable. There's all different types of approaches out there. But if you just keep making decisions where it's just going to prolong that, you know, when you could actually potentially be profitable, mm-hmm. you are putting the business at risk. And especially like something, you know, like COVID, of course, it was tough on us. I mean, you know, especially when the sh- shutdown first happened, I think our sales probably dropped by like 90% because we're, you know, everything shut down. But because we had still been careful at that point, we were able to weather the storm. We weren't a month away from shutting down. And a lot of people would be really surprised, even with larger businesses, behind the scenes, what is what's really going on. On the surface, they look great. They have a lot of retail storefronts. Things are looking great. And then behind the scenes, they've been bleeding red for years. And that's the reality. And so it doesn't matter whether you've got a mom and pop you know, bakery or whether you're some retail giant. It, it's good to try to be profitable. Yeah. You know, and the sooner the better, in my opinion, uh, to each their own. But I guess also think about it like this, like, um, you know, there's, there's different ways to reach that pinnacle of success, right? Let's say you bootstrap versus somebody who fundraises. And let's say both of your goals are still in the end to be acquired. But let's say you bootstrap and you do a, a, a really solid job. And let's say in the end, let, let's say you sell your business for $15 million, but you own 100%. You get 15 million, right? But let's say you you run a business where, you know, you keep fundraising, you keep fundraising. And at the end, you own like 8% of the business. And the business sells for 50 million, 60 million, you actually get less in the end. You know what I mean? And I'm not saying that's always the point. You know, that's always going to be the case either. I just mean, like, there's no right or wrong path. But you just have to realize that both of them come with some type of risk. Kudos to the ones who take gargantuan risks and it pays off. Yeah, I think I'll have brief moments where I almost envy people who can take that big of risk and not have a panic attack in bed because I would probably be literally like... I would too. I would probably be like pooping myself. Seriously, I would probably be so <laughs> stressed. I would probably just react like an like an animal in the wild when it gets cornered by yeah. a predator. Like, <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I've never been in that situation, but hopefully I could hold my bowels in. Um, but seriously, I don't think I could do that. And But at the end of the day, like if you're a massively big risk taker like that, and let's say you do that throughout your life, you will have situations where you will crash and burn. It's inevitable. It might not be this business. It might it might be the next one. But when you have that track record of always taking huge risks, statistically, sometimes it won't pan out. And maybe that's okay. Maybe you're the type where you have one business that becomes wildly successful and you do something next and it crashes and burns, but you still have a lot of money from the first one and you're okay. Good for you. But it's not going to be the case for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And uh, like I was telling you, had we taken some of those risks, in the beginning, it would have been donezo for us. Yep. We would not exist today. And I would probably still be in debt. Yeah, That's just the reality. You know, I'd rather still not have to go slow, but just a little bit more steady. Yeah. 
any growth, be profitable. That's the perfect way to end this episode. Yes. Be profitable. I it's, love it. It just feels so much better as well in the sense that like less yep. anxiety, like, you know, for us, the goal really early on is like, I wanted to be able to live off this. So I don't have to do other types of work anymore. Because the first two years, we were still doing work for clients for our other business. Yeah, That was paying the bills. And the dream was to like, oh, if we could finally stop doing that. And here you are. Well, Laura, thank you so much for joining me today. It was a really fun chat. Where can people go and try out some henna organics? Well, I highly recommend checking out our website, hennaorganics.com. And if you go on the bottom of our uh, website, there's a retailers button. So you can see which stores are near you or, you know, in hundreds of stores throughout the States. So chances are, if you want to try it in person, you can find a store nearby, or of course you can buy directly from our site. And as I mentioned earlier, we make everything in house. So you can pretty much order from our website, knowing that you're going to get the freshest products around. So yeah. Awesome. Thanks, Laura. Thank you. listeners. Thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time. Thank you for checking out another epic hour of business insights and inspiration on the Up Next in Commerce podcast. If you like what you've heard and you're interested in partnering with us to bring your brand to a growing audience of e-commerce experts, reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org to get the conversation started.